Uh, this is Toko US Brand Manager. I'm here with Jim Galanis. Jim competed as a US ski team member from 1974 to 1984. Some of his top finishes include fifth place in Murmansk, Russia in 1984 and sixth place in Heidenbinkel, Germany in 1983, as well as a World Cup relay victory in 1982. Jim finished 14th in the 30K in the World Championships in 1964-1984 in Oslo, Norway. Uh, Three-time Olympian Jim's top individual Olympic finish was 17th in the Nordic Combined event in Innsbruck, Austria in 1976. Jim won three U.S. national championship titles between Nordic Combined and cross-country skiing. After retiring as an athlete, Jim coached for the U.S. ski team for six years, then for Stratton Mountain School, and then started and coached the highly successful Alaska Pacific University program. Jim then worked for Edgewise Stone Grinding and Waxing Skis, and then managed Frisco Nordic Center. Throughout it all and continuing today, Jim provides coaching services. Jim's excellent skiing career and results are not only his only contribution to US skiing, but also his visionary creation of the APU program led to some of our country's best ever results and put the US on the path to long-term excellence. Jim currently lives, lives in Frisco, Colorado with his longtime girlfriend, Joyce Algier. Jim, thanks for taking the time to speak with me and the American skiing public today. Our paths have crossed very many times over the past three or four decades, but I think I'm gonna learn about you today, uh, things that I didn't know before. Uh, thanks, Ian, I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to sit down and chat with you today. Great, of course. Well, if, if you don't mind, let's please start out um, say, uh, talking about where you grew up and how you started skiing. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, I grew up in Southern Vermont, small town called Brattleboro, kind of within Wyndham County. Um, we were within the region of Putney and Guilford and, and uh, Brattleboro where there was a lot of skiing activities going on. And we didn't, we had a, a really strong club program. I really got into it through ski jumping and Nordic combined. And, um, you know, we, it wasn't a sophisticated program. Um, like a lot of the junior programs are, are now, but we had, uh, you know, we had ski jumping practices two or three nights a week with, gosh, I mean, sometimes there was probably as many as 80 or 100 kids out there ski jumping. And this is in a, in a town of, you know, eight or 10,000 people. Um, and then a couple times, a couple nights a week, we would have uh, cross country ski training under the lights. And, you know, as, great school kids and in, 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 in middle school, we kind of just grew up skiing and playing. I mean, I wouldn't say probably before kind of junior high school age that there was a lot of systematic training or, yeah, we'd, we'd go to our cross country practice and ski around a little bit and do some drills or do what, you know, do whatever, but it wasn't, it wasn't really focused on, on, uh, performance into skiing it was more just getting kids out and and you know much much of our time you know every afternoon after school um you know we'd be in the backyard building ski jumps and cross-country courses and doing doing kids stuff and just playing um you know then certainly by the junior high school age early in high school we started a lot more um systematic training but still it was yeah I'd run cross country I'd run track I would yeah some 
early on in junior high and, 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 and high, early high school years, I still played baseball and, you know, did, did a wide variety of stuff. And then as, as I got older, we started doing more bike riding and running and, and um, you know, with John Caldwell being just up the road in Putney, he was really our, our, our probably our early coach if if we had one I mean he was really great about not 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 being so much a hands-on coach but working on technique skiing thinking differently about training trying trying new things and um, I think you know what well I appreciated your 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 interview with Bill Koch he was Bill was a great innovator but I think part of that innovation stems from Bill's relationship with with John Caldwell and Bob Gray and all the other people around I think he it it, it fostered in us this ability to really think and question and and challenge what we were doing we certainly didn't get it right but um, we were always thinking about it can I ask you a question <clears throat> Bill talked about skiing to school sometimes. Brattleboro is a bigger town than Putney. Did you ever have the opportunity to ski back and forth to school? No, Brattleboro is pretty much a platted, you know, a platted town. And, and yeah, there was just not, not those kind of routes. And Bill grew up in Guilford, which was from his house was kind of over the fields and through the woods to the, to the schoolhouse kind of situation. So that was, that was a totally different, uh, environment down there in Guilford, even though it was only like seven or eight miles away from, from Brattleboro, it's totally different community. It seems to me that there's been one fundamental change in, in being kind of a growing up on skis, especially in an area where there's some kind of mountains. When I was a kid, like we were talking about, um, a whole lot of people ski jumped did in order to combine as well as, as, as cross country ski, especially if they grew up in a ski family in an area with some kind of traditions. But nowadays, it seems like that ski meister, if you will, you know, where they all have all the different uh, disciplines, including jumping, has more or less gone away. And perhaps it's being replaced from people that, that where people grow up in mountain areas with backcountry skiing. So they're growing up on backcountry skis, as well as they're skiing Nordic on track and such. And, and in that respect, they're more of, a, more of a total skier. What do you think about that? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think you're definitely right. I think, I, I think, to a certain degree, we're we're suffering from, you know, early specialization, too early specialization. By the time kids are 12 or 13 years old, they're 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 just they're just skiing and they're roller skiing in the summer, and and it's kind of frustrating for me to watch. They're not you know, they're not riding their bikes that much. They're not out there running or hiking. You know, in the winter, they're they they probably most of them have never even strapped on a pair of alpine skis or, or, or backcountry skis for that matter. And, um, you know, at, at those younger ages, my skills weren't that great, but boy, we did a lot of, you know, backcountry touring and cross cruising and all, all those other kind of fun things um, that kind of round out your overall athletic and not only your athletic, but you're also your fitness. Um, skill set. Um, I remember growing up something that I don't know you can really do anymore in some areas of the country but my family we'd, we'd just wax up all the skis and we would ski from our house or from about a mile from our house 
and we'd all have backpacks with lunches and stuff in it with hot chocolate and sandwiches. And we'd ski across cornfields and, and woods and breaking our own trail, you know, six or seven of us. And then we'd, we'd stop after a couple hours, drink and eat a little bit, turn around and ski home. We'd be gone for four or five hours, kind of a family hike, if you will, on skis. Yeah, right. But, you know, I'm not sure you can do that very in many places anymore. Um, well, it, it really comes down to the family and it comes down to, I think, local development. I mean, I think, I think you can do it. I just, I, I think, I just, like I said, I think we're, we're so focused on early specialization. A lot of those things um, just get left on the wayside. And, and, you know, the families, you know, I, I think here in Colorado, it's, it, there's not a deep tradition of cross-country skiing. So a lot of the kids I see when I, when I work for a year or so with the local club here, you know, their families aren't, aren't skiers. They didn't grow up skiing. They kind of got involved in it through the club and, 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 and not, not through the family and the kind of the traditional values of the sport that, that probably still occur in a lot of places in New England, for example. Right. There are more ski, Nordic ski families now than there ever have been, I would say, in terms of, you know, parents getting their kids into skiing. And if you look at results sheets, although this isn't all about racing, but you look at results sheet, you can see the, the grandparents' names and the parents' names of the young kids that are out there now. I mean, that's all encouraging, I think. Yeah, in some regions of the country, that's happening. I know up in your your area, there's a lot of uh, there's there's a there's a generational tradition getting built up, but not not so much down here in Colorado. I don't I don't see it. Yeah, well, for sure, New England. I grew up in New England, as you, I think you probably know. Uh, yeah, you see name after name, family name after family name. You know. Uh, anyway, uh, here's a question. Then um, you ended up going to. You end up skiing internationally for the United States starting in 73. How did you get to that point? You mentioned uh, John Caldwell and you mentioned some, some coaching, but how did you, it takes a lot to get to that point where you're even interested in skiing internationally, much less capable. It was, it was just a natural progression, you know, we had, you know, I don't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but as, as a young kid and a Nordic combined skier, which is what I started out doing is, you know, there was starting probably around Thanksgiving time, we would go to Lake Placid for a, tr a training camp, you know, just three or four days over Thanksgiving weekend. And we'd cross country ski and, and, and jump and, and probably end it with a race. And then, you know, Christmas time, there'd be another camp. And, and then after first of the year, there'd be competitions kind of, you know, not massive competitions like they are now, not big focus JOQ races, just kind of regional races, whether it was in Lake Placid or, or Stowe or Hanover or wherever. Lebanon. I mean, all these little towns just hosted, everyone had their weekends and there was cross country races and jumping competitions. And, um, you know, not, a, not unlike what we do today, but just not as big. And, you know, I think we just, you just move through the system. You move through the process like kids do now. It's just, it, it wasn't, wasn't a lot different. I won't say it was, 
better or worse than what we are doing now, but it, I think it's, I think there's a lot of value in, in what I call the local development. I, I'd rather see kids racing locally when they're 12, 13, 14 years old and not, you know, not packing them up and sending them off to national championships or even junior nationals necessarily. I mean, I think, I think we, we tend to rush this whole development process and kids don't learn how to, uh, train and win and lose in races and be, yeah, race, gather race experience in, in kind of unimportant races before they start getting thrown into these big things and not, you know, not having a clear understanding of what they're doing. I totally agree with that point. Uh, and I think that we're, we're talking about junior development, and that's the context you mentioned that in, but I think it's the same for me nowadays. I, I'll say, I, can, I don't have to go to whatever destination to get my butt kicked, I can get my butt kicked here, you know? Yeah. Like what's the, I understand it's fun for some people, but for juniors and especially for youths, <clears throat> I guess always showing them that there's someone, you know, there's something bigger and there's someone that, I'm not sure sometimes that might create hunger, but in other times it might create pressure and almost an exhaustion or a hopelessness where staying local kind of focuses on how fun the sport is and it, you're doing everything in balance. You know, yeah, and, and you know, one of my pet peeves is I think we've got a. This is this is a challenging issue, and in, in, in some circles would be viewed as viewed as controversial. I think our our whole national program really is set up around making teams, making events, making the junior nationals, then making these U sixteen trips, and that trip, and this trip. And it's not about developing within the sport. So they, they tend to view, it, it tends to, at least in my mind, it creates a view that racing and is about making trips and it's not about developing as an athlete, developing the skills, develop, learning how to train, training well, building up over the, the years it takes to become good, we just become overly focused on, on making these trips and the kids that don't make these trips then are, are almost automatically selected out. They're done, they're finished in the sport. And this is happening at, at 14, 15, 16 years of age. And I, I just think that's, that's not a great way to go about it. So I, I grew up skiing citizens races before I joined Bill Coakley. And I had no interest in joining Bill Coakley until I was later in the Bill Coakley gauges, uh, but I, I grew up skiing Washington's birthday race, the uh, uh, Paul Revere Cup in Fort Devens, and then a little bit later the Dannon Series races. Yeah, and then there were there were super low key, at least from my perspective as a kid, super low key, more or less ski festivals with a bit of a sharp end. There were some really good skiers there, but for me it was more about just seeing thousands of skiers out there interested in skiing and, and getting from point A to point B. And, and uh, it gave me a taste of the Nordic culture. And it was more for me, just a whole bunch of skiers coming together and skiing. Yeah, and I think from a development perspective, it's, it's you know, none of us are that smart where we can pick out who's gonna be the champions when in, right. in, their, in their mid 20s, when they're 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, we just can't. 
right. and, and, and the whole selecting out process starts too young, we may be losing kids that, that, are, that are even more talented than our current crop. We don't know. I, and, I do agree. And, the current system with making teams, there are so many talented late bloomers out there that get more or less rejected or, or lose their self-belief or even the enjoyment of the sport because they're not getting that reward. Right. Where they might be super talented, just late bloomers, for example. Yeah, I won't even say they're late bloomers. It just takes it takes time. You know? But the physical a, a kid isn't fully, You know, when I was a freshman, yeah, a kid I isn't ninety nine pounds. Yeah, right. And that's the problem. A kid isn't fully developed and 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 mature and a and a adult athlete until they're in their, you know, late teens, early twenties, and. And it's it's not a late bloomer if you happen to get good if you if you've been active and progressively improving your training processes for years between say 14, 15 years old, it, it's gonna take eight or ten years. Yeah. And that's just what it 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 just what it requires to to build up over time. And I, I'm I I'm get I get a little troubled when we target somebody at 13, 14 years old and I see it all the time. I saw it in Alaska, I see it here in Summit County. I see it in New England is, yeah, they're gonna be the next great runner. They're gonna be the next great cross country skier. They're gonna be the next great cyclist. And more often than not, those people don't end up being the next great ones. I totally agree. I saw, I saw that growing up and I see that now. Yeah. And, and some of that is that, that, in, that, that systems get that built in reward You've got people winning junior national championships or divisional championships who are early bloomers and either don't have the passion for the sport or they lose their passion or they, they, they develop so early, they're not going to get much faster between 14 and 18, you know, whereas other people... Yeah, that happens all the time. All the time. <laughs> and other people, they're these little tykes and they're, they're, they have to figure out how to get a second here, a second there, a second there. And then between 16 and 18, they get three minutes faster. I mean, when I was in Bill Coke League, I did the Bill Coke Championship twice. I was five minutes out. <laughs> and the guy who won my second Bill Coke Championship beat by five minutes. He passed me on the on the course like he was in a car and I was walking. <laughs> Fantastic athlete. Uh, three years later, I could I beat him by a minute and 10K and he never beat me again. I never even saw him again. I mean, but a great, great athlete. It's just we were on different timelines in terms of our physical yeah, yeah. But I mean, you can from a... From from a broader, I'll, I'll say something that, that is 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 I think illustrates what what I feel is happening in our development system. And I just I was looking at the results from Soldier Hollow's races last weekend, and you know you, I kind of compared those to two years ago, and it's sort of the same people among the top, but they're not necessarily going a whole lot faster, and. That that's 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 yeah that's got to be the focus of our sport development. If you know if kids aren't improving every year, they're going to lose interest in the sport. I mean, how long do you want to you know finish a race and be three, four, five minutes behind the winner? Um, and I think we tend to lose sight of that in our development process. To me, good development means kids ought to get a little bit better all the time continually 
Yeah. You mentioned this in a, in a comment on social media earlier in the year, and that resonated with me. More or less, when you're training and racing, but especially during the training year, you should see a constant improvement. If you're not, that's the feedback that you're not doing things right, or you're making mistakes or something along those lines. Is that is that a accurate... Yeah, it is. I mean, that's that's what I've, you know, particularly in the last 10 years with, with some of the analytic software we're looking at and, and, and really watching how athletes train and recover. Um, I, I, I really believe that, you know, the, the improvement timeline of fitness is not months, it's, it's days. And it ought to be you know, you, you know, the way we used to train back in the 70s and 80s was, okay, you'd start out the year high volume, but you'd, you'd just do these massive, you know, 100, 120 hours of skiing in November. And somehow we magically expected that, okay, we're going to taper for a few weeks and then all of a sudden performance is going to come up. And it, I just, I don't, I you know, we've all followed these models over the years. And I, I, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, I've really taken a hard look at it and go, that's just not the way it works. I, I agree yeah. that the, the, the built-in feedback that your body gives you, you know, the clock gives you or how strong or not strong you are or whatever. I, I do think that that's uh, important feedback to pay attention to. Yep. Um, I think simple. Yeah, and we're, I mean, we're, we're with whoever we're coaching or I'm coaching, we just, yeah, we, it's, you know, it's, it's a struggle. There's a lot of what I call coaching by rumor going on out there. And I'm, I'm, I'm not so much seeing this in the cycling or in the skiing world as in the cycling world is, you know, there's kids 14, 15 years old that are riding their bikes, mountain bikes and road bikes, thousands of hours a year. And, you know, I'm trying to instill in the kids, I, particularly on the cycling side that I, that I coach, mountain biking, um, you know, yeah, there's a time when you probably have to ride those thousands of hours a year, but not when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, your, your body isn't ready for that. Yeah. Can they do it? Yes. But do they get better from doing it? Maybe not. And I just see that that attitude is we're we're locked into these prescribed notions of training volume and and what you need to do to be on the proper development pathway or whatever. And no, that's not in my mind. That's just not right. The proper development pathway is one where step by step by step we keep getting better and fitter and and have a higher uh, performance level. Hey Jim, I'd like to talk about. Um, I'd like to talk about your experiences at the Junior European Championships. I know your recollections are fuzzy from from the time because it was a heck of a long time ago. But uh, back then, the World Junior Championships in Nordic started in '77. So you participated in '73, '74, and '75. So because it was no, because it was such a Eurocentric sport, it was the European. Nordic Junior Nordic Championships. I, I would love to hear about that because to me, this is exciting. Um, you're an American going to Europe to participate in a 
absolutely European sport. I imagine this was your first time in Europe, maybe your first time flying internationally, probably outside of uh, Quebec, your first time hearing a foreign language spoken, your first time seeing signs in the street in a foreign language, first time with foreign money. That alone superficially is, is a lot to take in, but then you've got then, you see the Super Bowl of junior sport uh, you're participating in, must have been very intimidating, but also very exciting. Can you talk a bit about that, please? Yeah, I can. You know, and and, and it was a long time ago, and it it, it is it is very fuzzy. But um, you know, I, I think the as a as a Nordic combined skier when I when I started skiing internationally, I wasn't I wasn't really ready, particularly on the ski jumping side, for that level of competition. Um, um, on the cross country side, I was, I was a little bit more competitive. So it was, it was a valuable learning opportunity at that point. And, 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 you know, I think these, these trips, I mean, they were kind of one-off things. They weren't, it's not like it is today where you're going over there with a team of coaches and wax techs and, and, uh, support staff where, you know, we, we probably had one coach and, and you know maybe an assistant coach on the cross country side or something, and yeah, waxing with with a skeleton staff was always a challenge. Getting the right wax on skis and just having having them be positive experiences was 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 pretty tough. But I think the the the, the important thing to take away from my experience at that level is is watching you know bill bill i can't remember who bill or bill and tim um you know they were in the top three in some of those early european junior championships and i was skiing pretty well on the nordic combined side so you know we kind of had a a kind of recognition that we were we were at least on a pretty clear pathway to to being able to ski at that that level internationally yeah which is remarkable and, and that's one reason why I was asking a few minutes ago about how you got to that point, because you know, this, this, these, are, these are people that come from regions that are very developed back then with, um, with stars to look up to and emulate and, and proven coaches and coaching methods. And we got a bunch of hacks from Southern Vermont showing up and yeah, you're skiing around a bunch, <laughs> but it, it wasn't super advanced, you know, and the coaching wasn't even that hands-on. And here you are doing well internationally at a at an, at an event that isn't even the world juniors at the time because no one outside of Europe was really participating in it. It's a, it's remarkable right. to me how successful you all were. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't look back at that time and go, okay, that was a real groundbreaking time, and that's that's probably why it's shaped some of my development views the way it are the way the way we just discussed them is is. You know, I was I went there when I was what 15, 16, 17 years old, somewhere in that. And I don't I don't think it was a super important step. I mean, it was fun to do, it was fun to be recognized for sure and to have that experience, but I don't think it was a a critical um, let me put it this way. If we didn't have that experience at the European Junior Championships during those few years. I, I don't think it would have limited our development potential. Here's a question for you. When you were, let's say 17, 
who was the fastest cross-country skier you'd ever seen? Was it like Bob Gray or, or some American? Or was it someone at the European Junior Junior Championships that you saw? Oh, I, you know, I think it was, you know, you can look, we can look back at it. Bob Gray, Mike Gallagher. I mean, by the time I was 17, Bill was 18. He was pretty damn fast then. Yeah. Right. And Tim Caldwell was pretty damn fast. So we, we had, we had that local exposure to pretty fast skiers. Um, you know, John Caldwell would bring Odvar Bro and Magna Mirmo and uh, some women over from Norway to race in, you know, the Putney relays or whatever the heck was going on. I mean, so, I mean, we, we had, we still had that exposure, but it's, it's, again, I'm, I'm not sure just, just seeing it is, is kind of one thing, but I'm not sure it's just, just by seeing it, I'm not sure it triggers any great development perspectives. I did two world junior championships with cross country skiing. My first one was in Lake Placid. My second was in Osceola, Italy. And my first race at my first world juniors, I was ashamed at how I did. I, I was getting blown by on the course. I was demoralized. I thought I was having a horrible race. And at that time, I was by far the top junior in the country. And when I finished, I was amazed to find out that I was a top American junior. Because I, I, I mean, there was this one point going up one of the big hills in Lake Placid, there was a train of Europeans coming past me and I couldn't get back in the track. So I just sat there and watched yeah. them all go by just going, dang it. And, and I, when, I, when I finished, I thought, oh man, I'm the biggest loser in the world. I didn't belong there. And I ended up um, 43rd, about a minute and a half out, which isn't too bad in a, in a 10K classic at the time. And, and I was shocked to find I was a top American still, despite that experience. And, and that was a really important experience for me to have gotten my butt kicked so bad. And then to see I was top American to say, okay, I've got a lot of growth to do here. I don't know. It was, it was, a, it was, an, it was a perspective opening experience for me. You, you didn't have one of those, huh? Well, no, I think we did. I mean, yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, definitely got embarrassed and got our asses handed to us and, and certainly had our share of the, those kind of experiences, but I, I, I mean, and, and they were, they were disappointments and they, they, I think they fueled the, they fueled the motivation to train and get better for sure. I, I'm not minimizing those experiences. I just don't think we need to have a lot of them. Yeah, I agree with I mean, that. I don't think, I don't think getting your butt kicked year after year, you know, just shipping people off to Europe, just, just to get, have that experience is the right approach. I totally agree with that. But I do agree. I do think that that perspective helps. And then you go back to the drawing board and you work and you, and you find incremental improvements over the years and, you know, that kind of a thing, instead of just getting shipped back and. Yeah. There's got to be a, a, a middle ground in terms of the difficulty and, and the goals and the progress. Yeah, and, and but at some point you got to, you know, I think I think in, in kind of my development profile, um, when I when I've kind of figured out, I won't say I figured it out. When I when I got a little bit better about training at a higher level, um, you know, then I'd go to like. Scandinavian night race tour after 
you know, after the conclusion of the World Cup season and and do those races where I could jump in behind Yuha Mieto or Thomas Vosberg or whoever and start to get a sensation of what it meant to ski fast. That That's where I really felt I had my breakthroughs is just racing night races, night after night after night and marching into April, early April and jumping in behind these guys and going, okay, last time I stayed behind this guy, two Ks. I had the same experience. I raced what they called Polar Cup. Is that what they called it when you were doing it, or maybe uh, it was Polar Cup existed? That was kind of that was kind of the second phase of those series. But I mean, we basically, I mean, I remember a couple of years in a row, Bill Koch and I got in the U.S. ski team Subaru and drove from Oslo over into Sweden and just went up the, basically went up the. Uh, East coast of Sweden and did all these night races as we moved north and it ended up in Kirna or Rovaniemi or someplace like that and for the finals. And that's, you know, we did that, I don't know, probably two, three weeks after, after the, <coughs> excuse me, after the last world cup race in Oslo. I agree totally. At least my experience was parallel to that, that for me, that exposure kind of, you know, racing every couple of days and, it wasn't the world championship such that there wasn't a high pressure and everyone wasn't peaking. There was some alcohol being thrown around by some of my, you know, some of the competitors out there such that they weren't on the necessarily in the top of their game. And I was competing against people on a daily or weekly basis that I wasn't actually that competitive with at world championships. Yeah. And, and, it, and I kind of worked my way into it and I gained confidence. And as you say, you're skiing behind some world leading skiers and you just want to see how, how long you can match them. For me, that was a great learning experience. Yeah, no, and that, that that's that was that was the optimal experience for me, as far as I'm concerned. And it just it wasn't a question of fitness; it was kind of learning how to race and learning how to push it. And yeah, maybe maybe improving technique a little bit, or you know, whatever. It was it it just helped. Yeah, it was kind of it was kind of one of those light bulb moments where things went off and goes, yeah, I can. I can do this. I can ski at this level. This is this is not outside the realm of the possible here. Yeah. So um, just quickly, let's talk about senior world championships in Falun in 1974. You competed as a junior in order to combine, which is pretty remarkable because, you know, you were quite young. That's a heck of an experience to compete in Falun Sweden and the senior world championship as a junior. Um, not to, well, I guess it was about four years later, you switched to cross country. You alluded already you were a better skier than you were a jumper, but you must have had some kind of interesting experience at that at that event. Yeah, that was that was kind of the the uh, yeah, you know, following hasn't really changed <laughs> in the last 30 or 40 years. It's pretty much the same facility, the same ski jumps, you know, kind of the same venue. Um it, but it, you know, this is this is '74. This is this is a time period when uh, fiberglass skis just surfaced in, in these races, and and you know we were on you know wooden wooden lonesome skis with black plastic bases on them that barely held wax. So, um, you know, it was more so than say the Junior Worlds or anything like that. This it was that was the eye opener. Okay, you're you're whatever, 17 years old and, and, um, you know, 
three minutes, four minutes, whatever, out in the cross country, you get you get a lot of work ahead of you to 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 get on the pathway. Yeah. Um, in 1976, you competed in the Innsbruck Olympic Games in Nordic Combined. And you finished 17th, which is obviously a great result. I believe this was also your first year as a senior athlete. So that's really remarkable also. And the fact that you are coming from a non-Nordic nation, you were 17th in a Nordic Combined Olympic Games as a first-year senior. That's remarkable. Uh, have you got anything to say about that? Yeah, I mean, that was that, that's, that's when I think, for me, things started to come together a little bit. Cross-country skiing, I was skiing at a, at a, at a much higher level uh, that two years later after the, after the whooping I took in 1974 at the World Championships. So um, skiing, my, my cross-country skiing was at a high level. Jumping was, I wasn't jumping bad then, but not, not great. And that's, you know, I can't remember exactly. I think I was probably third or fourth in the cross-country portion, but probably, yeah, ended up 17th or whatever. So that means my jumping wasn't wasn't up to up to a very high level. So uh, Bill was Bill Coke was a combined skier. You must have had a lot of combined events with him and so on. And when he's when he skied cross country in 76, did that contribute to you wanting to, you know, seeing a success, thinking, hey, I think I can maybe do this. Was that something that contributed to you switching over? Uh, not at not at that point. Um, I hadn't started really thinking about it. You know, that's it was it was interesting. I was I was skiing pretty well. Um, and you know there was a yeah nordic combined was kind of the the stepchild of the nordic sports under u.s ski team at that point in time um and i was i was skiing cross country pretty well and there was people talking about oh jim should be on the the relay team and and i i don't remember all the details but anyhow marty hall decided well I'm sure he was probably thinking, Let, let's just do a time trial and see how Jim stacks up here. And he's going to get his butt kicked. So then that question goes away. Well, well, I ended up getting second or third in the time trial um, just before the Olympics started. And, and, and that, <laughs> that I didn't, obviously I didn't ski the relay at the Olympics because Marty wanted to have the, you know, the cross country skiers doing that. Um, but it, it really started to help me understand that, that uh, my cross-country skiing was, was coming along well and I was pretty strong. For sure. Well, um, the FIS started holding World Cup races in the 81-82 season officially. However, clearly the events that were held before the 81-82 season were the top international Nordic ski events at the time and were obviously very competitive. The races held before 1980, for example, include some of the biggest heroes of the sport, many of whom you beat, such as Miklos Floss, Holke, Vosberg, Bo, Eriksson, Eriksson, Aunli, Harkonnen, Kervasnini, Nieto, Bela, Ottesen, Vanzetta, and Koch. Do you see any difference between the races that were held before 81-82 and after, except for the FIS official designation? Um, not really. I mean, for through my career, I mean, I think I think obviously the World Cup is, has <coughs> changed quite a bit in, in in the last twenty or thirty years. But within the kind of the, the spectrum of my skiing career, 
it, it was pretty much the same races and the same cast of characters. And um, yeah, the World Cup kind of brought a little more focus to it. And, you know, certainly, especially when, when Bill won the World Cup, um, it, it, it elevated the sport, I think, in the eyes of, of the skiing community in the U.S. So I think that was a that was a good thing. Um, um, but Absolutely. but really, you know, it's 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 all it's all racing, and we, it was it was as you said, it was against the same people, and um, I, I think the 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 skiing speeds that that we had in the early 80s were when you when, yeah you put them up against what people are skiing at today it's not quite not quite as fast but if you if you put them in perspective to kind of the trail grooming and the, and, and the ski equipment and the waxing um, we were skiing pretty damn fast in the in the early 80s uh, given those those limitations absolutely Lake Placid hosted the 1980 games. You switched over to cross country, I believe, in 78. Yeah. <clears throat> Lake Placid uh, hosted the Olympic Games in 80. That year, going into the games in the fall and early winter, there was pretty much no snow anywhere in the eastern United States. Um, how did you train and prepare for the games in the months leading up to them? Months leading up to them. Um, I mean, it was it was it was typical. I can't remember. We either trained in. Uh, you know, Cook City or, or West Yellowstone. I can't remember when we made that shift from, from, from Cook City to, to West Yellowstone, but it was in, in, the, in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, so we did our November training there. And, uh, you know, then in early December, we went and did the first kind of the leg of the traditional races in uh, Central Europe, Davos, Reitenwinkel, Schoenach, I mean, uh, all these, all these small places that <laughs> many of them still hold races today. Um, you know, the big 1980, you know, we had, yeah, as you said, there was no snow, but we had nationals in Mount St. Anne. I can't remember exactly, but it was, it was certainly within the two week time frame um, before the start of the Olympics. And that was, that was just a boondoggle. So not so much the races, the races were, were good. And I think I, I, at least for myself, I skied at a higher level at national championships. Uh, that was, I won the 50 K race that year there. Um, but it was just too soon before the Olympics. And we didn't account for the stress and the buildup and the hype going into the Olympics. And then we had nationals, you know, less than two weeks before the start of the Olympics. And then I think that just took the edge off everyone's performance, both from a, a physical and a mental perspective. That same winter, uh, not that same winter, but in 1982, um, you, all, you all did the World Cup final in Casa Roto, Italy. Yeah. And, I'm not sure why it's not more public knowledge, but y'all y'all won the relay, right? The final relay. I I mean I think everyone really wants to hear about your experience in that relay, and what it all meant to you. I mean, um, it's the only time it's ever happened to my knowledge, and it's incredible. 
it was, it was a big deal. We really had fun. And, you know, we had, it was, it was one of those days where we all, you know, kind of unlike the, the, the Lake Placid Olympics, where we had high expectations for, for a medal in the relay there. And I mean, it was, it, it was a, I, yeah, it was a waxing nightmare if I remember right. It was like 32 degrees and some new fallen snow on the day of the relay in Lake Placid. So that, that took us out of the game pretty early. But in 82, it was, you know, good spring skiing conditions. Um, I can't remember, I skied, I typically would ski second leg. I think Dan Semino did, <laughs> did the first leg and, and, and Tim Caldwell maybe did the third leg and, and Koki the, the fourth leg or something like that. And, um, you know, Dan, Dan got us in the game and, and we just kind of stayed there through the whole, the whole race. I mean, we were right in the, right in the hunt. And if, yeah, if my memory's correct, I mean, there's, there was probably two years we did relays there, but it probably about the third leg. Um, it started snowing sideways up. It's up. Castle Ruth is up on this high, high plateau above, above the town. And there's no trees. I mean, it's just a big open expanse, really, really great, beautiful skiing, but it, it not protected at all and it started snowing like a banshee and um for at least the third leg or maybe the third and the fourth leg after we got done our first two legs we had to go out and ski the tracks in in front of tim and bill because it was snowing so hard i mean you know you're talking a couple inches an hour kind of stuff it was just hammering down and the tracks were filling in and we were in the lead and um, you know, I don't, I don't think the Norwegians and the Swedes and some of those coaches really, uh, thought too kindly of us out there busting tracks, but, you know, we, we finished our legs and we probably skied every bit as fast trying to break in the tracks ahead of Bill and Tim as, as we did during our race. So, um, it, that it took, a, it took a team effort to pull that one off for sure. One observation I have about that is um, this was the day after the individual races the day before, the fourth American in those individual races was 14. You guys, this wasn't necessarily a fluke, even though this is the only World Cup win we had, but you guys were really, really good. I mean, at times, you know, I, I had a lot of top 10 finishes and, you know, places like Rydenwinkel and, and Murmansk in the Soviet Union at the World Cup finals one year. I mean, I think, I think we, personally, I'll speak for myself. I, I, I was overtrained too much of the time and I lacked, I lacked any kind of consistency, but you know, there were, there were, there were periods, I mean, for me where I'd come out hot in December and have some really great races. And then typically I'd be flat for the month of February and then March at, World Championships and Holman Colon in '82, in particular, and um, kind of the World Cup Finals and and Castle Ruth. I mean, we were just we were skiing at the level that was where I felt we should have been more often. Let's talk about uh, You just alluded to your your great finish in Vermont. To me, there's a couple of aspects to this. So in 1984, you finished fifth in Vermont at the World Cup in Russia. First, I don't think, were there any other Americans competing? 
Yeah, there were there was I can't remember who was there on the women's side. Um, I know Judy Rabinowitz was there. Aldun Indestad, I know he was there because you know Murmansk is way north, and it was we got there and it was just colder than cold. And the hotel uh, we were staying in hadn't been open all winter, and it was cold. I mean, basically, we'd go down and eat, go back to our rooms, crawl in our sleeping bags, and try to stay warm. Go out and ski a little bit. <coughs> come back, get in our sleeping bags again, and try to stay warm. It was it was grim, but for me, that race, I really, I, I was disappointed after that, even though I, I had a fifth place finish, which about my best World Cup level for, race. For those yeah. of listeners that don't know where Murmansk is, if you look at the island or peninsula that Scandinavia is on, or Norway, Sweden, and Finland are on, if you go to Finland and go all the way north, there's part of Russia that wraps around the top there, and Murmansk is at the top of that tip of yeah. the of the land. So. It, we're talking way the heck up there. Yeah, and and so I mean, but it was it was a yeah, it was, it was obviously it was a classic race. Still, skating hadn't really kicked in, and and uh, you know, I know Ruff Patterson was there. I think Mike Gallagher was there, um, but I remember getting splits during the race. You know, at five Ks I was like in in fifteenth place, and at ten Ks I was I was in fifth, sixth place. And I, I felt like I mentally, I didn't give up, but I went from attacking the course and I can, I, I can still feel it and visualize it today. I was skiing really well and really fast and really moving through the, through the race course well. And I went from attacking and digging for every second I could find to going, wow, fifth place, that's pretty good. Now I can, now you need to protect this position and you know the way I'd been moving up through the split times I, I think it would have been really reasonable to to uh, to have expected to win that race the results of that race were completely dominated by Russians I think I think you were the lone American or the lone non-Russian in the top eight or nine um, obviously most people don't understand how many Nordic skiers there are and, and were in Russia and how incredibly deep their development is. I mean, it's a huge, you can have 200 skiers at a very elite level in, in a country like that. Did that experience kind of um, open your eyes about Russian Nordic skiing and, and the whole scene there? It was, I mean, for as far north as it was and as cold as it was, I just remember um, particularly after the, the first race day there when things warmed up a little bit, there were just hundreds of people out there skiing um, everywhere, just trails across the hills and, and through the woods and, and people were just out there skiing. And, uh, you know, I don't think I really, at that point, I was really thinking in terms of the development potential um, of having that many athletes. Cause I think there's so many other things that have, have uh, contributed to the Russian success yeah. beyond just numbers of skiers and and uh, and an effective development program. Obviously, um, um, <laughs> one other aspect of that race that might be interesting to consider is the fact that you were an American at the height of the Cold War, competing in Murmansk, Russia, 
and you're the only, I think, non-American that broke into the top 10 or eight or something like that. Was there, you know, it's not like Russians are necessarily going to cheer for you. I don't know. What, what was that like? Um, you know, it was weird. You're, you're right. It was Cold War time period. And, and uh, you know, we were, yeah, we were afraid to go out and, you know, change money at the bank. And, and you know, I think the paranoia that comes along with, with, with the Cold War mentality, we, I think, um, yeah, we, we're kind of believing that the, uh, you know, the Russians were watching us every, every time we went outside the hotel or did anything. And um, yeah, we, we skied in Leningrad too, a couple times in, in World Cup races there. And it, 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 it was just a weird, a weird environment to go in. And um, but it wasn't, it, yeah, it wasn't. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know what else to say. It was just skiing behind the Iron Curtain was just, it was just strange. It was, it was a strange vibe and didn't matter if it was in Leningrad or, you know, it took us, geez. We sat on a, a we had, we had a, the next to the last World Cup race that year was in uh, Fairbanks. So we had to fly from Fairbanks to Moscow. And then we sat on the airplane on the runway in Moscow for like five or six hours to get to Murmansk. And they told us, you know, it's big snowstorm in Murmansk. We can't get in there yet. But we landed in Murmansk and it, you know, it hadn't snowed there in days. <laughs> you know, that just that kind of that kind of stuff that just didn't it didn't happen in, in North America and Western Europe when we were, were traveling to races. So. I had some experiences, for example, um, in 86, 87, I competed in world juniors in cross country in Asiago, Italy. Ruff was one of my coaches there. Um, and we had armed, armed soldiers, armed guards with us the entire time. Even though it was in Italy, it was a very politically stressful or tense period. Did you have armed guards with you during much of your competing, especially when you were in East Bloc countries? Uh, not so much in, in, in the East Bloc countries, but I tell you, going into, um, I don't know if it was the pre-Olympics in Sarajevo or, or uh, the Olympics, but there were, there were armed, yeah, there was military press, presence like every 10 meters around every course. Um, we had uh, armed guards provided by the, there were soldiers, yes. uh, provided by the organizing committee to, and they, anytime we left the hotel, they accompanied us. So we would, we would generally walk to the course to ski because we were close enough. And we would have, uh, a, there'd be a Jeep closely following us with rifles sticking out the sides and just closely following us, just kind of, um, you know, going five miles an hour behind us, escorting yeah. us to and from the center. If anyone went to a restaurant or, or just to go shopping or walk around, there'd be armed guards five feet behind them at all times. That's yeah. a pretty unique, uh, unusual experience for an American. Yeah, for me, the scariest time period, and it was when I was coaching, was going to Val de Femme for the World Championships right after the Gulf War started. Um, was that 91 or 93? I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember the year. Okay. Yeah, it was one of the two. It was in that time period, but it, it was scary. I mean, there was military presence 
you know, at our hotel, our hotel was surrounded by a big chain link fence. Yeah. Uh, barricade. And yeah, it, 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 that was, that was, that was my kind of scariest experience and thinking that, uh, you know, there were, there was obviously a terrorism threat. Uh, yeah. The, the, the government of Italy and, and certainly the organizers there in Val de Femme. Terrorist threat to the, to the event itself, but clearly to the Americans, which have been great uh, opportune targets. Yeah. Yeah. So and there, there were, there was, it was the same as to Sarajevo there in Val de Femme that year. There was, there was military presence around every inch of the course. You know, another experience I had to come to think of it, maybe, maybe this, uh, you had the similar thing, but for me it was a little later, but I got to know some athletes racing um, at the time from Yugoslavia. And then I noticed they were gone for a few years. And then eventually they came back and I was like, hey, where you been? Well, fighting the war. You know, the, the war for independence for Croatia and Slovenia and, and the, you know, the whole Balkan wars there, they were gone. These are, these, are, these are cross country national team skiers who I got to know on the circuit. And I, it, was, it was a whole different perspective on life and on the ski scene, you know, when, when you run into that, huh? Yeah. Do you have any experiences like that? Because you, you competed and coached through war times as well and in such periods and war times in other, other regions. No, I, didn't, I really didn't. But I mean, I don't, I don't know that I was even aware, you know, we were even aware that uh, I think your, your time period there with, with, the, with the wars in the Balkans is a different time. We didn't have that going on then, but... Uh, so I got to know this guy named Robert, Robert Kerstein. He was a skier for Yugoslavia. And I got to know him in the Polar Cup in the spring of 86. And then I didn't see him in 87 or 88. I think I saw him the next time in 89. And that's when we had that conversation. I went, oh, light bulb, you know, like, wow. Uh, and, it, and it carried through. Um, I saw him in 92. And that might have been when he told me. But it was I didn't see him for three or four years. It was yeah. remarkable. I'm sure. I mean, those those we see it in a, in a lot of sports. You know, we're kind of in our household here. We're kind of tennis fans. You know, and not necessarily a big big fan of uh, of Djokovic, but you know, he he was a developing tennis player in the time of the wars, and you know, he tells stories or they do documentaries stories on him, and you know, he's he's inside a a, a bombed out swimming pool hitting tennis balls against the side of the pool um, kind of stuff. And I mean, we don't, we don't have, yeah, fortunately in our, in our country, we don't have the, the ongoing battles that those guys have had to live through, through their young lives. And, and some years ago, you could see that the emotional turmoil that Gorny's even Isovich was going through when he was one of the world's absolute best you could see he was quite vocal, and but he was also emotional about what was going on in his homeland. And I thought he would, he represented his country quite well. But um, Croat or Gorni even I'm sure you remember him. Super. Uh, I don't. Well, um, so I wanted to just kind of give you the, an open opportunity to talk about some elite racing experiences you might have had that we haven't covered because we covered some some highlights for sure, but um, you've got a, an entire career of fantastic and unique experiences that I would love to hear one or two if you, if you wanted to offer up some memorable experiences you might have had racing. 
Oh boy, you know, I, the, the real highlights were, um, you know, we've, we've kind of captured, I think with, with the Vermont's graces and, and the World Cup finals and, and Castle Ruth. And, um, you know, I think a lot of my good races, yeah, my really good races, and I, 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 in, in kind of preparation for the last one of these podcasts that I did with another fellow is, is we, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, an article that in the New York Times or something that Jim Page, who was then the program director said, you know, Jim's never satisfied with, with his performances. Um, you know, he'll always give you a half hour spiel after the race of what he could have done better. And I, I think that to me, that was really uh, a misunderstanding and how, how you manage athletes. Cause I, I, as an athlete knew when I had a really good race and I knew like in remarks that I, I really believed I should have won that race. And I've had other races like that. And, you know, sometimes these, these good races happen and, you know, could be the Putney relays. You just have one of those really great days that that are that is really important in your in your overall development. Yeah, you learn a lot from the bad days, but having those good races where you can where you can break it down and, and have the honesty to go, yeah, I skied really great for 10Ks, but I I sucked the last 5Ks and that cost me the race. I mean, I, I don't think that's a negative thing at all. I think that's a that's a that's a very important critical analysis that goes into uh, improving as an athlete. And I had a lot of a lot of good races and you know 80, 80 I can't remember eighty two world championships in Oslo. And my coach was Leonard Strand, who's from Eskilstuna, Sweden. He'd been he'd been doing some work for the U.S. ski team for for several years, and and I got to be. Uh, close with them and, and had a really great coaching relationship with them. But 90 to 82 world championships in the 30 K, you know, I had Lars, Eric Erickson starting 30 seconds behind me and coach Leonard and I sat down and said, okay, he went out to the two K mark and we, we built a race strategy around, I want to ski easy and ski into this race for two Ks. So when this guy comes by me, um, I can jump on them and go with them. And he came by me. Yeah. Right. Uh, couldn't have planned it better. Right. At two, two and a half Ks. He came by me. I jumped on him, skied. Uh, I, I probably followed him for 16, 17, 18 kilometers <laughs> before I kind of started flagging a little bit, but that was, that was what I considered one of my better races. I mean, we, we certainly had a plan, um, to try to capitalize on skiing behind somebody that was a little bit faster than me. But as much as we had the plan as I had the, I had the body and the head to be able to do it on that day. Cool. Here's a question for you. If, if you look at your experiences at the junior European championships and also at the senior world championships in Falun as a Nordic combined skier, and then fast forward into the early eighties in the early eighties, you belong there and you were competing and, and getting a lot of great results. And you look back at your earlier experiences, it was you know kind of like getting shocked by the level of the competition, even though you're doing quite well. Where, was there a race or a time period where you thought, 
because of this experience. No, you know what? I think I've got some talent or ability here. I can compete with these guys and I might even be able to win a race someday internationally. Yeah, for sure. It, and, and, and that really started to occur more and more when I started working with Leonard. He, he just gave me some confidence. He just, he just said, you know, we tweet this and this and this about your training. You're going to be competitive with these guys. And so I, I, I really started to believe it. But the race, I don't know what year it was. It was either the fall of 78 or the fall of 79. Um, it, was pr it was prior to the start of the official World Cup. We had some races in Telemark, Wisconsin, and, and some some, I think it was just a North American championship. So it wasn't, it wasn't the precursor to the world cup. So it must've been in, in 78 or 79. Um, and we had early, early morning starts like at seven and cause it was, it was just, they were shoveling the snow onto the course to keep the course prepared. And it was warming up into the fifties every day. So it was, our starts were really early, but and I still have a picture downstairs of me skiing in that race. Um, it's, it's an interesting experience, but I felt like it was so in that, in that December, early December race, I just, I beat Bill Coke. I can't remember it. He was skiing well by 40 seconds, 45 seconds. And it was one of those days where I just was on fire. And um, it, it was probably the single race where I knew, and, and you know, Bill Coke and I were good enough friends. I mean, he, he was like, I ski fast today and, and you beat me. I mean, that, that, that's legit. And it, it was, it was from then on, I think things started to move forward in a way that I, I knew I'd skied really fast. And I knew if it had been a world cup race or an international race, I would have been among the best. And that, 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 again, it, I, I, was a North American championship. It was just kind of us and the Canadians, I think. You know, maybe there was a smattering of a few Europeans, but I, I don't, I don't think we need to always confine our our race experience to World Cup races and, and World Championships and Olympics and all this. There's some there's some great things that can happen at, yeah, even a race in December in Telemark, Wisconsin. Well, that. Uh, really really have a can have a big impact on your development yep cool so jim you've been inducted into the vermont ski hall of fame when on the u.s ski team you were part of a core group of vermonters including for example bill coke tim caldwell stan dunkley mike gallagher and john caldwell there are other vermonters from that time from your generation who also made long-term and profound impacts in u.s nordic scene such as Jim Fredericks, Sverry Caldwell, Martha Rockwell, and Trina Hosmer, for example, there's, there's a bunch of them. What happened in Southern Vermont such that it became a world player in Nordic skiing? You know, if I, I wish I had, <laughs> I wish I had the answer to that because I, I, I and, and I, well, I shouldn't say that. I think I do have the answer to that. It was, it was a culture and a community of, you know, when I was a, you know, freshman in high school, sophomore in high school. I remember going up to Putney and doing roller ski, 50K roller skis with Bill and Tim or meeting Bob Gray and Bill for, you know, 60, 80, 100 mile bike rides. And just, just that training culture um, 
that that was fostered by by John Caldwell and and Bob Gray in particular. I mean, Martha Rockwell was there in the Putney era. All these other people you mentioned were kind of on the periphery of the of the Putney area. Um, and, and they did come in and out, but you know, I don't know. I, I just remember skiing around a field in Brattleboro and one night Bob Gray was out there and he goes, I want you just to ski behind me and tell me what you think. And of course, what I thought was totally wrong, not even close to what Bob was trying to get. But you know, the fact is as a 13, 14 year old, I could ski around behind, you know, Bob took the time to come down to Brattleboro and ski around with us kids in a, you know, around the perimeter of a baseball field. It was kind of what we had at that time. Um, so I, I think it's that, it's that community acceptance. It's, it's kind of, it's what we did. It's, it's who we were. And um, that's, that's really kind of to segue into another topic that that's what I tried to create at APU is, is and it took, it took a full decade to get there because we really were striving to create a culture where this training for skiing and, and, and performing and skiing is, is a, it brings value to the community more so than just, you know, do, do, do we win a medal or, you know, did we win the world cup? But there's, there's inherent values to the community for getting kids to focus on a sport and really strive for their individual level of excellence. It's not about just winning the medals or winning the World Cup. And, and I did a lot of work within the Anchorage community kind of on a fundraising and, and a PR level. I'm, I would go meet with the Lions Club and Kiwanis and the Chamber of Commerce and all these groups and, and really try to deliver this message. It, it's, it's, yeah, if we win medals, that's great. But what's really great is we're, we're building programs and opportunities for kids to learn about their own potentials as, as people and as athletes. And I, I, I think that's, that's where the true value of sport comes from. And I think, I think Bill, Bill Koch probably in, in, in your interview with him, Price, Price stated that same thing in a much more eloquent fashion. But I, I think that's what Bill, that was Bill's philosophy is, yeah, you know, all I can do is do my best. And sometimes, sometimes I win and sometimes I don't. And I'm, I'm really happy if I, if I've done that. And I think that, that attitude is, is, is really, um, it's necessary to be successful at a high level of sport to have that attitude. And, and it's, it's, it's really important for the, the individual's development. Muffy Ritz, one of the things that she says that it's uh, one of the most, the most rewarding thing about coaching for her is to show people that they can do things that they never thought was possible, expanding their own horizons or self-imposed limitations through sport. That's, it's not exactly the same, but it's pretty similar to what you're talking about, huh? Yeah, it, it's, it's similar. And, and, you know, when, when I founded the APU program, part of this was, okay, I wanted to have a, a home base for, for people aspiring like Keegan Randall and Nina Kempel and some of these other athletes that were around, have a home base for them where the coaches were there 365 days a year, the athletes were there when we weren't training for racing, but we're, we, 
we created a support structure through having junior programs, youth programs, master ski programs um, that, that were all part of this same community. You know, we would have we would have gatherings with our masters athletes and our, you know, and athletes like Keegan Randall and Nina Kempel and the, the elite athletes. And it was we were all on the same mission. Everyone was 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 on the same page um, with the, was supporting the program. And um, yeah, the master skiers were <laughs> trying to learn how to ski and be fitter and and be better and 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 particularly in our in our women's program uh, I think I probably had one of the first all women's cross-country ski programs in the country when I founded the APU program and um, you know and and I still talk to some of those women today these days and they are so grateful that we gave them that opportunity to learn how to ski to to develop their fitness, their, their self-esteem, their, 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 their enjoyment and quality of life. The, all these great things happen just because they were associated with this program. And then, you know, 20 years later, whatever it's been, those people are still deeply appreciative of that. So, so let's talk about it, continue to talk about APU. You've started that program, <coughs> it was your vision. The program offers athletes the ability to study, train, and compete. It's located in Anchorage. Maybe Twin Cities is the other place in the country, but Anchorage has got, if not the highest, one of the two highest densities of cross-country skiers in the country. Um, there are multiple places to be able to, to ski there. It for sure, for sure, it is now and was a vibrant Nordic community. Eagle Glacier is something that you had your eye on as well at some point, which we can talk about which isn't too far away that, that might've enhanced the location. Can you tell us about, you already did, but to a point, but maybe in a nutshell, your vision for the APU program that you um, created as well as the challenges you faced in getting it going. Yeah, I mean, th there, were, there, were, there, were, there were some challenges, but mostly it was a slow uh, and successful ride, I think. Um, the challenge, the, the, the big, challenges. I, I, I decided to leave Stratton Mountain School. Um, really enjoyed my time there, but I wanted to go back to Alaska. And, and I, I, the impetus for this is, you know, we've kind of talked about this a little bit is the ski team changed. You know, you know one year they decided we're going to do club programs and, and the next year, oh no, we're going to do a centralized national program. And I said, you know, we just got to take this responsibility and, and put a program in place that, that combines good coaching, uh, great opportunities for the athletes and uh, some educational opportunities and, and, and have a, a really good development program that's independent of the, the U.S. ski team and is something that can be sustaining over, over decades, really. Um, and, and so that's, I had, I had a really great cast of, of, of community leaders that really, really stepped up and helped us uh, build the program, raise the money and, and, uh, and make it all work. Um, but it, it comes back to this sem sem simple concept I have is good development is local. 
you know, if, if, yeah, if we have a skier that makes a U.S. ski team and they have a bad year and they're off the ski team, they don't have a good support structure um, at their club level. They have nothing to fall back on. They're, they're gone. They're lost. To build and, on that, if you look at, for example, Rosie Brennan or Leif Zimmerman over the years, there were many years they would make it onto the national team. And then they would, and then they would, they would lose that local support network because at the time the national team would oftentimes require so much travel and so much presence at camps and doing things their way and so on. They would lose that, then be kicked off the national team at the end of the season, go back to their local club and support network, and then get better than they were before, and then return to the national team to see it repeated a year later. Yeah, and I I would say people, people like Rosie, who's obviously doing a great job right now, is she wouldn't probably still be in skiing if she didn't have that support structure. She's, she's uh, communicated that clearly too, over the yeah. years, her gratitude. Um, and and that, that's what I think is important. It's just, it's, just, it's just providing that opportunity. You know, again, we can, we can talk about medals and, and uh, winning World Cups and doing this and that, but really what it's about is giving, giving the athletes the opportunities just to be the best they can be and 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 yeah i mean we've learned a lot about training and 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 how to prepare athletes since since i was an athlete that's for sure and um you know hopefully we we as coaches can continue to do better and better jobs um to help prepare the athletes even better if you look at the the community and culture that you changed up there and you created, and you compare that to a guy, for example, like Torin Coos, who came from Leavenworth, Washington. There is a ski community there. There is a local ski club and he did a lot for him. He was well coached as a junior, but once he hit the elite level, he was searching for that community and culture and coaching, that support network. And you know, he, he was two years with this club, two years with this club in Switzerland and Norway, all over. And, and he did a good job, I think, of, of trying to obtain that community culture and coaching expertise, that support network. But I think if he would have been from Anchorage, he never would have gone anywhere because he would have had it and he would have flourished even more. I mean, yeah, I mean, coaches and and programs work for some athletes and they don't, you know, it's not not an easy, easy fit for everyone always. Um, I, I get what you're saying, Jim, but my point is simply there's a ton of value to be gained from the community and culture that you created in, in Anchorage. Yeah, and, that, and that, that, that's what I'm most proud of, in, you know, 10 years after I've left the program is that it's still going, they're still doing a great job supporting athletes and they're supporting not only just the elite athletes, but they're doing junior programs and they're doing the same masters kind of programs I was doing, but they're building the sport and the community. And, and the, you know, the other thing that, that I would be remiss to mention is, you know, Jan Boron's a good friend of mine. And particularly after, after I kind of left APU, I got to spend more and more time with, with Jan, because obviously I was less busy. And, and um, you know, he, he was doing the same thing within his club in Anchorage at the same time. I mean, he was trying to build the culture and, 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 and so we weren't doing it in isolation, but I think having, having those two programs in the same town, um, you know, out on the trails, a lot of the same time together, um, 
really, really solidified the, the, the program. Now you now we have two programs in, in Anchorage that are supporting arguably world-class skiers. Absolutely. I was, I was impressed um, two years ago, I was up in Anchorage and Jan had a little um, celebration kind of a thing. I've sponsored that program I think something through TOCO, something like the last 12 or 15 years. Yeah, forever. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Time. And he, he gave me his plaque. We had a picture of and names of all of their junior national championship champions at the time. And I think there were 17 over this, those few years. And, and all of those names are names that we know very well. They're, they're successful skiers that, that went on and it was uh, it was really cool to see what he's built there and to have been a part of that, and that's clearly part of that anchored ski culture that we're talking about. It's not just APU for sure. I agree. Yeah, no, for sure, it's not just APU. I mean, I think APU because it was, yeah, be, because of the, the the way I approached it at the start, maybe was a little more visible at first. But I think having having those multiple programs there was was a positive. Thing. I mean, it, again, it gave it gave more kids and more families access to good programs and good opportunities. So another aspect of the location, I think, being fantastic is the proximity to Eagle Glacier. In my lifetime, I've gone to Dockstein Glacier as an athlete training nine different times. And towards the end of my career, I decided at Dockstein Glacier is in, in Austria. It's um, at just under 10,000 feet. You go there back in the day anyway, and you'd see 10 different Olympic medalists and, and 10 other world championship medalists there training around national teams from all the elite uh, training countries in the world, uh, racing countries in the world are, are generally there. And after my ninth time of being there and competing, I decided that it was bad for my development to go there. I would go there and train on the glacier every morning and sometimes every afternoon, but if not, then I would do some kind of dryland training the, the possibilities were fantastic. And I would usually stay for three weeks because it's so expensive to get there. You have to maximize your opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Unlike the Europeans that would go for a weekend or whatever. And I would leave tired, dragging ass. Uh, I would do a time trials before like roller ski and running time trials before I went to Dockstein. And when I got back, I swore I was gonna kill it. And I was usually a minute to a minute and a half slower. And it would take me a full month or two to get back to where I was. And after a while, I, I, I finally decided as fun and thrilling and exciting as it is, it was bad for my performance and development. In Norway, they don't have that problem because they have Sonjafell Glacier and it's at low altitude and it offers the ability to ski and ski clean more or less year round, but without the high altitude, which is so stressful for the body. Eagle Glacier is at low altitude, it's local. You, did, you developed that site. Can you talk about the importance of Eagle Glacier to the program and development? Well, yeah, clear. I mean, agreed, agreed with everything you said. I mean, we, we've had a lot of U.S. athletes uh, pretty much destroy, destroy their skiing careers on Dockstein glaciers, you know, back in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, that, that, that's a fact. And, you know, the, yeah, the big thing is, again, I wanted to I wanted to have a home base for the athletes where we could we could ski in the summer without having to travel halfway around the world to do it. We could ski it you know, moderate 5,000 feet or whatever it is up there. Um, good terrain on the glacier, just, just easy. You know, we can, we could go down there and take a helicopter up, be up the glacier in 20 minutes and 
ski for five, six, seven days, and then come down and go back up the next month. And um, I, I just think the, the, the continuity of having a solid um, local opportunity, just it, 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 again, it comes back to development. Where does development occur? It occurs at the local level. And the more kids we have that have access to good training opportunities at the local level where they don't have to spend thousands of dollars to travel to Dockstein and be on the road for two or three weeks to, to do it. And, and it just, it just, it just sows a good training process and into the kind of the fabric of the athlete's life. It's not a disruptive process. So. Right. I, I agree. And that was my experience. I stopped going. And then I, then I made finally the Olympic team, the national teams and, and so on later in my career, which, which was, um, I think a, partly a direct result of me saying, okay, I'm in charge. So I'm not going to do things that I think are counterproductive. And that meant avoiding the the high altitude glacier camps. Let's, let's talk about, um, when I did an interview with Keegan, pretty much the pivotal part of her career was a series of conversations, but one, especially that she had with you regarding a 10 year plan. You competed um, in world juniors, got sixth place, competed in the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic games, did well for her at the time, but got hungry for much more as, as she put it, that lit a fire in me. Um, and then sat down with you and said, hey, how do I become the best in the world? And you had this 10 year plan that you set out with her with, with very small benchmarks, incremental benchmarks, how to get there and also the, an emphasis on being patient. Can you talk about the importance of that 10-year plan for someone to, to, to reach those horizons? Yeah, I mean, it, the first thing to understand is it wasn't really, you know, a, a model 10-year plan, you know, with, with, with a lot of details behind it. It was just, we need to make, we need to hit these, these points. And at, again, I think... It, the reason I, I typically frame things in, in longer term perspective is, is to really to keep the athlete from getting, not, not I'm gonna use the word greedy and trying to do too much too soon and, and, and kind of stall out the development process and, and just get them to think more in terms of, I'm just biting off a little, a little bigger piece and I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus on you know, junior worlds this year and, and next year I'm gonna focus on, on trying to step into the senior ranks and do X and the next year I'm gonna try to step it up a little bit and, and the kind of the training, you know, we can, we, we probably mapped out some training progressions that I wouldn't agree with now. Um, but just, just really a general long-term approach that helps build some confidence step-by-step step and, and just keep, keep the process clean. So you were not trying to, again, it comes back to our, our previous discussion about development is just, yeah, any athlete can do a lot more than they're probably currently doing, but are they gonna get better from it? Um, I think if you're, Keegan Randall's teammate, and you come to a program that she's in three years after or four years after, you don't necessarily have to have this um, groundbreaking or type plan 
because all you have to do is follow her, follow in her footsteps, know where she's been and how she does things and emulate her and so on. But with Keegan, uh, yeah, of course, there were some some solid athletes in the past. But I mean, her goals were pretty much unreached. Um, and it was difficult to, to follow somebody. So and this is the way she put it as well. But so your 10 year plan was really un- traveling into uncharted territory. So you need to, you know, after this year, so many years, you need to have these achieve these benchmarks in terms of performance and also your training goals. But I think that was a very revolutionary and visionary, um, perhaps practical um, strategy. Well, yeah, but I think, you know, Keegan did have somebody to follow. She had Nina Kempel right there in Anchorage who, who was on a, yeah, a similar pathway and, and it, it, didn't, it didn't work out quite as well for Nina, obviously, as it did for, for Keegan. But I would, I would say, you know, she, she very much led the way for, for Keegan. Um, I was a teammate teammate of Nina's for years, and I absolutely admire and respect her. Um, I didn't mean to diminish her achievements or persona at all. Um, I absolutely think a ton of Nina, and what a skier, and what a uh, gritty, talented athlete. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, so the the whole process there, I mean, that's that's what we kind of hope to be able to do through through the uh, through the program I founded and merged with APU is 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 you you kind of build these pathways through the program and and people can like Nina would plug into it for a little while and then she'd be off with the national team and then she'd come back in and plug into it again and I think that was good for Keegan and a lot of the other we had some other really good women uh, yeah it you know, I, I think I, I I take a lot of responsibility. We 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 made a lot of training mistakes over the year. It was part of the over the years, and it was part of the learning process. And um, you know, we weren't Norway. We didn't have the Norwegian Olympic Committee. You know, tracking, collecting data on every athlete training history and and guiding kind of national development philosophies i mean we were we were groping in the dark a lot trying to figure things out so jim you've been involved with two very successful and very different nordic communities especially i would say the southern vermont putney brattleboro area and then anchorage that and both of them were have been groundbreaking in their times for u.s skiing when the u.s changed the emphasis from more or less a centralized system to a club-based system, I'm of the opinion that is the one of the two biggest reasons for our massive improvement and results recently. The other one being, I think that although there's still rampant doping, it's far, far less than it was. And if you have less doping, then it's easier for for us to to compete at a higher level. What are your thoughts on the importance of the club-based system? You've, you've already, we've already talked about this quite a bit, but from macro level. I, I, I think, obvi- I mean, I think your statements are exactly right. I mean, I think that's, that's the ski team. Yeah, they, they went to a club system. They said they were going to support a club system. And then, you know, 
and and Bill Marolt's early years at the ski team, he shifted back to a centralized, yeah, we want to move everyone to Park City and we want to, yep, yep. Yeah. It was a club system, but then they'd rob your best athletes. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and then kind of, I think the community and, and, and people like myself that started developing programs said, you know, ski team is going to come and go and do whatever it's going to do. We, we've got to set this system up so it supports our athletes locally and, and uh, provides a consistent long-term continuity of programming that you really need to have to, to, to grow the sport and, and develop athletes. Absolutely. It doesn't happen at the national team level. By then, it's, it's done. Totally agree, except for with a few certain athletes where the national team coach has become their club coach and they train consistently with them. But that's, that's, a, that's a, for the United States, that's, you know, two in a million kind yeah. of thing. So when you look at the U.S. domestic ski scene, what are some trends or observations you might have? Trends you might see or observations you might have. For example, something I would say is junior skiers today are incredibly strong and much stronger than they were even 10 years ago. Um, I'd, I'd say that that's a that's a fair generalization, you know. But I think it's it's also it's also region, you know, it varies a lot from region to region around the country, and um, I, th I think in general the athletes, the junior athletes, are fitter are stronger um, but one of the one of the things I observe when I kind of look at results is I'm, I'm I'm not sure through through the broad base of our club participation skiers are really getting faster yeah there's a few in pockets in Anchorage and Jan's program or APU or CXC or you know wherever there's a few pockets that the kids are getting better but as as a broad base of skiing, I'm not sure that we're seeing that increase in in, in fitness and performance. I agree. In, in pockets, yeah, but not 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 as a general statement across the U.S. And, um, you know, I think look looking at uh, you know Gus Schumacher, for example, I think he's he's. You know, and I, I would put Eric Bjornsson before him in the same boat. I think, I, I think Eric's results over the years were maybe not in the last year or two of his career, but previous to that, he he was skiing as fast as our top women were at the time, relative, you know, fist points or percent behind the winner, however you want to look at it. He was he was, you know, back in the twenties and thirtieth place. But he was he was doing as well as our women, but we we weren't we weren't distinguishing that that from you know the men's field is a little bit deeper and a little bit more competitive, and Eric was getting thirtieth place or twenty fifth place and and having a really great race, and we weren't recognizing that and and supporting that, and I think that that that's been a challenge, and you know hopefully hopefully we've learned from that experience. And you know, recognize Gus Schumacher two races ago. What he was, he was two percent behind the winner, forty six seconds in in fifteen k's or thirty five minutes of racing. That that's he's there. 
I mean, the next day didn't go quite as well, but that's, you know, we got to recognize that. And that's, that, 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 if, if we want to see more guys follow along, that's the hardest. Gus is, appears to be bridging that gap from junior to World Cup racing um, pretty effectively right now. And we got to recognize that's a really hard gap to jump. Absolutely. From my perspective, David Norris and Scott Patterson, this year, um, Davis hadn't been, David hasn't been on the World Cup yet. But last year, and then Scott Patterson for David and Scott Patterson two and three years ago, they were also there. I mean, Scott was a 10th and 11th in home and colon in the Olympic 50Ks. I mean, amazing result, an amazing race. If you look at percent back, as good as, you know, more or less we've ever had. But he did not get the accolades or the recognition that he definitely deserved in my opinion. Or the support. What was that? Or the support. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. From whether it's the U.S. ski team or the clubs or, or wherever wherever yeah. the responsibility lies is, you know, it's just, it's, I, I think I brought up Gus Schumacher on bridging that gap is because, you know, the women are, Gus is skiing really well, you know, and the women are skiing really well and the women are getting first, second, third, fourth, fifth and skiing really well. Gus is getting 10th, 15th, 20th skiing really well. And, and, and there's a lot of glitter around the, po the podiums, but there's not a lot of glitter around, um, you know, really, really recognizing when these guys are starting to break through. Um, I just don't feel like they're getting the, the, the recognition they really have earned. I totally agree with you. Hey, Jim, what, if you, if you were to, be approached by a parent or, or, a, or a young skier in this day and age, like a 16-year-old skier who's got big dreams, what priorities or advice would you outline for that person, for that skier? You know, advice for an aspiring junior skier. Um, I, I, I think, I think the, the, the big difference I see from, from the Scandinavian countries in particular to our countries is there's a there's a high emphasis on teaching kids how to train well and i'm i'm a broken record on this is these days because I, I i've had what i believe is really good results when we when we really focus on teaching the kids what does it mean to train easy what does it mean to train hard? What does it mean to build strength effectively? So that they understand and they, they, they see the progress when they do things correctly. Um, I think there's a lot of vestiges of this, you know, the more, the more harder, the better approach to training. And so here's, a, here's a question that we can segue then with, when you consider all types of skiers from juniors to elites to masters, what is the most common mistake that you see being made in training? Oh, it's that. It's, I mean, it doesn't matter. I can go back to my career. It was, I wasn't confident enough to go easy enough in the distance training. So I pile on the high intensity training on top of that and sporadically get really good results and sporadically be really flat and tired. And that, that is without 
a doubt the, the most important aspect of training. And the other one that's often overlooked is how do we develop strength effectively and, and, and uh, be as strong as we need to be. And, can, you, a, can you give me a, a snapshot of your thoughts on that, please? Well, I, I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of methods. And, and uh, I've, over the last year, I've been working with Jim Stray Gunderson, who you may know is out of Park City, Utah, and, on, on be strong BFR bands with blood flow restriction um, rather than take up a lot of time trying to train or trying to explain that people, people can Google it and there's lots of really great, excellent research on it. But, you know, in my mind, when I was at Stratton Mountain School, um, I learned a lot from a coach there named Pavel Stosny, who was the head of the the uh, Alpine program at Stratton Mountain School. And he really worked with me and helped me understand the importance of, of doing maximal strength training, even for endurance athletes. And I introduced it at Stratton Mountain School and I felt like the results from that were just fabulous. And um, I got a lot of flack for it. Oh, endurance athletes, that was back in the year where you know endurance athletes did light loads and high reps and all this kind of stuff and and i i think we need to we need to always keep we don't want to chase our tails and always be looking for the silver bullet but we've got to be systematic and 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 looking at what's happening in the world around us of sports science and 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 the research and if something looks like it's effective is we got to be willing to try it and in, in terms of that's what I did with strength training when I was at Stratton Mountain School. And I mean, really, it just blew my mind how effective improving these, these young kids, particularly on the women's side, um, their maximal strength, how much it improves their endurance performance. And, um, yeah, so we, we continue to, to, to look for innovative ways um, to do the same kind of thing nowadays. So, so Jim, regarding the other aspect of training mistakes, that would be training too hard when you're supposed to be training easy. I, it seems like there are a few solutions that I've tried to embrace over the years. One is, let's say in the summer, instead of doing over distance roller ski, uh, if you don't have, especially if you don't have easy train, but why not go for a run where you can more easily, uh, or a bike or whatever, but more easily uh, control your effort level or your intensity level while not sacrificing the dynamic aspect of your technique. I see a lot of people going out for over distance roller skis and they're skiing so poorly, they're developing these habits that in my opinion, kind of ruins their ability to ski fast. So it seems to me like foot, foot running and, and, and cycling and hiking are, are good alternative um, activities. And the other, um, aspect of this that I want to mention is in the winter I try to when I do an easy ski and I do the same with with other people that I help out here and there is I would recommend skiing easier terrain yeah. like what they call in Europe the tourist trails when you're doing an easy distance ski and then when you do your hard stuff of course you go to some really hard terrain uh, so you can get a higher pulse and so on but I think some people make the mistake of skiing easy distance on a terrain that's too high and too hard which makes it almost impossible to ski with any kind of relevant technique whatsoever without ruining it or going too hard, either or. That, this, is, this is the 
the million dollar question that we've 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 been challenged by for my whole lifetime in coaching and I, 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 I basically agree with your approach. And I think to me, if it's the distance training is intended to be solely metabolic, it has nothing to do with endurance strength or power or anything else. And it's, and it does it's, it's training the energy systems. And I, I really, believe people get into this mindset well if i go a little bit faster i'm going to get stronger well it, that 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 whole concept is a failure to understand the basic premise of how you develop strength you don't the, the force output you're putting to say ski at what i would call a, a level two versus a level one is is not significantly demanding enough. So you're not, you're not building up strength. I think we use these terms incorrectly. Um, and, and I think we need to, the, the big shift I've made in my mind, particularly over the last five to 10 years is endurance training is about building. It's about building systems and structures within the muscles and within the cardiovascular system to deliver energy. It's building. And if, if it's, and we've got this mistaken notion that tearing down is the way we build up. So what happens, you try to tear down. So they end up going too hard and they tear down, but they don't get better from it. Strength training. Yeah, that's about tearing down so you can get stronger. Interval training. Yeah, that's about stressing and tearing this challenging the system so it can get better. Endurance training is about building the systems so you can get better. And, and I, I think that, that's the big shift in, in my focus. And the hard part is, um, you know, and, and over the last 30 or 40 years, we've tried many mechanisms to address this. Strength training is probably one of the key elements to addressing kind of the speed you can travel at it. At, at a true level one intensity, for example. But it's also, I, I tell athletes, particularly on the cycling side, where, where I've got a few more athletes these days, is I have them go at true level one on their bike rides. And they're like, I'm hardly moving. And I go, give it two or three months. You haven't developed that energy system yet. Give it four to six months, give it a year, whatever you got to suck it up and do it or else you never train, you never develop that energy system. You're, you're always kind of flirting and pushing into the anaerobic energy systems. Then. Even though the intensity is still relatively low because you haven't developed the aerobic system effectively enough to meet the energy demands to ski faster and faster. And, and I, I see it's one of the simple tests I do with all the athletes I work with if every two or three or four weeks, they're not getting a little bit faster, whether it's on the bike or roller skis or running, at level one, something isn't working. Gotta be nudging, always. So, so I think there's a difference between, well, you have the aspect of technique. And I think it's a little different in cycling than it is in skiing. In skiing, you'll see someone skiing along in a level one pace if they're doing it, and there's technique, they're no more leaning over onto their poles. They're, they're no longer skiing in the least bit dynamic fashion, especially in a V1 when they're doing a V1 up a long hill or something. 
And and later, when you see them racing weeks later or months later, after doing all these long over distance workouts, skiing in that fashion, you can see their technique in the race. They're doing the same thing. They create these horrible habits. And for that reason, I think I personally think it's better to ski on easier terrain so you can oh, ski I, more I, dynamically I, without ruining your technique while not going too hard. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I might approach it a little bit differently, but yeah, I mean, that, that's a fundamentally a sound, a sound principle. I mean, there, there's no way if they have to, if, if, if they have to walk up every hill to stay in level one, because the course is, or the terrain they're using is too hard, that's, that's, that's not technically specific enough. Um, or even if it's not quote unquote too hard, but they're not fit enough. You know, if, yeah. if they're doing what you're talking about for four months, after four months, perhaps they're fit enough to ski on slightly more challenging terrain at those levels. But, you know, if they're going a little too hard all the time, they're not developing the energy system you're talking about. And they're just, they're, they're skiing a little too hard and with really poor technique, which yeah. you can see later how it affects them. I think that's, that, a, that, that's, that's, a, that's a double whammy. Exactly. So they're, they're reinforcing bad technical habits because they're skiing in too hard a terrain or too slow a speed at level one and they're not getting the metabolic effect they need from their training. And um, I, that's where I just see people not improving and things stagnate. And, um, I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I you know, my, my mountain bike guys, it's, it's a lot like cross country skiing. They ride pretty damn tough terrain. And it's taken a while for me to convince these guys that, hey, when you're doing a two, three, four hour ride. It's okay to go in easy terrain and just turn the pedals and keep the heart rate down and, you know, keep the cadence up and, uh, you know, or whatever skill set we're really working on. So I, um, I, I, I agree. I think that's, that, 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 that to me, I mean, I know <laughs> we have some interesting dialogues on this on, on social media. I know a lot of coaches don't agree with me, but I'm a hundred percent convinced is, is, is after 30 or 35 years of trying different mechanisms to get athletes fit enough to be able to ski effectively at level one or at whatever, however, however coaches frame the, tr the training zones. Um, that the only way to do it is to do it, to, to implement it correctly. So, so this is probably a good opportunity for you to tell us about your coaching and consulting business, specifically the practical information that First Beat technology offers and the principles of excess post-exercise consumption. Yeah, we started, yeah. Um, Tina Hoffman, who was, who was the ski coach at... Um, yeah, she was a skier for the University of Alaska uh, in Anchorage, and, and she, um, after she got finished with her college she, education there, she became a coach. She, she, moved, she and her husband moved back to Finland and uh, started working with, with a company called First Speed, and um, this, was, this was a software package developed by Heike Rusko, and um, I, I think for me, it was groundbreaking because uh, I've been working with some exercise physiologists in this country for a lot of years. And Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson in, in particular, spent a lot of time learning about physiology with Jim and time in his lab down in Dallas when he lived there and, and really studying 
um, the science behind training. And first beat came along and um, they had they had some training load metrics in there. One of them was called EPOC excess post-exercise oxygen consumption, which is kind of a, in a lab setting is is the is kind of the benchmark for measuring the training stress. So we have in within the software we utilize, we have TREMPS, we have, which is developed by Eric Bannister back in the 90s, which is a overall metric of training load. And, and then we have EPOC, which I use, which is an, which is another metric to assess the implementation of a given workout. Um, so if it's if it's if it's an effective distance workout, we ought to see a specific level of epoch direct developed from that. Um, but really, what it comes down to is is three or four really key principles. The software um, gives us the ability to measure um, athletes' recovery using heart rate variability on a daily basis in a non-invasive way. That that we can use to guide training. And then we can look at, uh, for years we've been searching for a way, you know, an hour of training is not an hour of training. If you go five beats higher on average heart rate, for example, in, in two different distance workouts, those are two very different training loads and stresses on the body. And it's, it's really helped me as a coach, probably more than the athletes, is to be able to understand what's working for this athlete and what isn't. And we have, we have a, a very direct method to look at the training load, which is a combination of the duration and the intensity of the workout. Or, or you could say the training load is the effect on the athlete in terms of stress? Yes. The stress load, training load. I mean, I, I mean, there's 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 a million different ways to probably describe that, but it's 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 we're applying a load, and then we need to see a certain recovery and adaptation of that load, and and that's what I'm I talk about, and um, I get criticized for it because I call it continual improvement. Is can, it, it's real. If you, if you have the correct balance between recovery and training loads, you're getting fitter all the time. And I truly believe that's what, maybe not so much the Swedes these days, but certainly the Norwegians have figured out is they're getting fitter all the time. So, so when, when you say training load, you could also say stress load in that the parameters you're looking at would also pick up a night of no sleep, an argument with your wife, yeah, uh, travel, you know, stress because of travel, uh, you know, so it's, it's the entire load. It's not just yeah, absolutely. the workout, which is information you don't necessarily have otherwise. Yes. Well, but stress is stress. And I, I've learned over the last, I, I don't know, I bet, I bet I've been using this system for a dozen years now. And I've learned it doesn't matter what the source of the stress is. If if kind of we look at it a couple different ways, we look at a rolling seven day average of kind of recovery indexes, and we look at the daily recovery indexes uh, from heart rate variability. But I know to get a really good adapt adaptive signal or adaptation response to a hard session, if, if you're overstressed, 
whether it's training stress, life stress, school stress, whatever, you're not going to respond to a hard workout if, if your recovery heart rate variability levels aren't, aren't at a reasonably high level. You're just not. I, I can guarantee it. And it, it, it's really a great tool to help me steer the athletes because I can look at it. And if their seven day average recovery index is say below 60%, I'll, I'll, go, I'll call them up and say, no hard training today. So you're not going to respond to it. We know that. Let's, right. let's delay a day or two. I have to think that this, this tool also gives an athlete the ability then to notice stress that they might not have, not to be more sensitive to it because you have a measurement and then to become better at minimizing stress in their lives. Um, one, one simple thing is uh, I've interviewed quite a lot of athletes and a good portion of them said, don't sweat like Newell, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't, don't um, get into that fight or flight mode because it creates a lot of stress. You get sick easy, you don't recover very well. And that these types of um, fight or flight responses to stress, for example, they do show up on this tool you're talking about yeah. and you become sensitive to it and you become better at minimizing stress and therefore being able to do more training and maximize and yeah. the stress that you do have in your life should be from training and not from stuff that's not important. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a great way to look at it, Ian, I, I, I agree. And I, I think one of the things, and, and Dr. Strake Anderson and I had this conversation almost exactly two or three days ago and we're we're co-working with a couple of, of running athletes uh, and and he goes well Jim geez the, the 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 HRV recovery is down for two or three or four days now and but he feels fine and I go well yeah he feels fine because he he his his paradigm or his his body feelings in his mindset has, you know, if you're overtrained for six months, eight months, a year, and you back off just a little bit, you start feeling better, but does it mean you're really recovered? No, you're just feeling better. So it's our own mental framework of, of you know, you can use the example of, of what a hard workout is. To some people going at say 80% of their max heart rate might feel like a really hard workout because that's their that's their mindset. Whereas other people are doing the same workout might be hitting 90 or 95% because that's their paradigm what what helps or, or, or what constitutes a hard workout. So to, to your point is it, it helps us kind of reset our thinkings and feelings around training and recovery and what does good recovery feel like? I think a lot of people are used to carrying around a 50 pound backpack. And if they take a couple of days off, they're carrying around a 30 pound backpack. They don't know what it's like to not be carrying around a backpack. That's right, exactly. And, and that, that, that's, that's what we've learned from this. And, and, and the athletes I'm working with respond really well to it because they're like, I know Jim's watching my recovery every single day and we're gonna, we're gonna pick up any issues long before they become major. And that, that, that helps them train. They know then if I say, it's good for you to go do the hard workout as planned today, go blast it. They, they have confidence to go blast it because they know we're watching the whole picture for them. And it, it just, it helps their confidence in training and performance. I think one of the classic 
coaching, but even more so training mistakes is going for the A plus or the hundred percent. Meaning, you know, you, you don't ever miss an interval workout. You don't, you do max hours, you do this and that. And then oftentimes going for those last few percent, you end up blowing the whole thing and you're overtrained or sick and this and that injured, et cetera. So it seems like um, having this tool would enable you just to train more or less optimally without the risk that's commonly associated with training optimally because you're more sensitive to danger zones and times. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head here. It's, 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 it's not how much training you, you, you do, it's how optimally you train. And I'm, I'm confident using these tools we're using um, that on a, on a daily basis, it's, it's, it's effective for me to guide their training. And, you know, I, I make year plans for athletes now and I make weekly plans, but the, the state of the art of coaching now, you gotta be willing to chuck that plan the day after you wrote it based on what, what the athlete's body and their, and their, their heart rate variability data is telling us. That, that's, that's what optimal training looks like. It doesn't mean, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite feeling it today, but I've got a rest day plan two days from now. So I'm gonna go ahead and hammer a hard workout anyhow, even though you may not be ready. That's where people get in trouble. And yeah, back to the issue of, I, I, can, I can see it when, when uh, when they do distance too hard, the, the heart rate variability, if they do two or three or four hard, two hard days in a row, their heart rate variability changes a lot. And I don't even need to look at their training data. I can just call them up and say, I know you've been going a little bit too hard. We need to, we need to dial it back and reset your system here a little bit. And, cool. and, and, you know, I, Zach Caldwell and I, I, I talked to him regularly. He had a great, a, a great concept and it, it fits with, with my training theory is we were discussing this on social media is when you do a hard workout and you ask the athlete, when are you going to benefit from this? It ought to be like Friday or Saturday or Sunday, not two weeks from now or a month from now or two months from now. It's, the, the, the thing I've learned through both strength training and um, monitoring training and recovery um, for a number of years now is the adaptive response needs to happen within a relatively short window or a short time frame for it to be really effective. That makes a lot of sense, obviously. Jim, I know you're, um, you know a lot of people, a lot of people know you, you're well known. But if someone wants to learn more about this or uh, take advantage of your coaching services, how would they get in touch with you? Um, best way is through uh, through social media, Facebook or um, yeah, Facebook is the easiest way. They can just type my name in there or type in Epoch Performance Training. Um, that's kind of our business page, and uh, they can reach out to us through through that okay. avenue. Jim, I know you were, and uh, you're a super dedicated athlete. I think 
being very methodical is one of the things that defines you and also being super informed in everything that is important to you as another thing that I think defines you. I'm curious to learn if you were to look back at your career, what have your strengths and weaknesses as a ski racer been? Um, you know, we, 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 back in the seventies and early eighties, we did some, some, and this was something I, I relate to you. I know after, after talking or after listening to your interview with Bill Koch, I think, um, his mental focus, his ability to kind of dial out the no, noise and focus in on getting down the track as fast as he possibly can. That was, that was something Bill, I think, was really, really great at. And I, I learned a bunch from talking to Bill about this stuff, but we also had some good uh, psychological support um, training and how to relax and how to learning how to focus in races. And I, I think, Really, I tell I tell people stories, and particularly athletes I coach with, so that they can start to understand how important the focus is when you're in a race. Some of my best races, I remember one like in Labrador City. It was the it was the first World Cup of the year, probably in '83 or '84, somewhere back then. Is I was having a really good race, and I I couldn't hear the coaches on the side of the trail, couldn't hear anyone. I felt like I was skiing in a tunnel. I was so narrow focused on skiing fast, getting down the track, staying relaxed, whatever, whatever cue words I was working with. I think that that aspect of, of the sport, I think is, is really important. And it also, I think there's, there's some concepts out there that, you know, how, how we perceive um, fatigue and pain really dictates to how hard, how hard we can go. And, and when you're in, yeah, different psychologists have called it flow state or this, you know, whatever. But when you're well focused, you can you can ski or run or do whatever your sport is at a much higher level. Um, and and so that that that's something we we worked on a lot. And when when and and I think it 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 marries well with the training concept because we all know whether it's in our work life or social life or training life, um, if we're tired, if we're overly fatigued, we can't focus well. You know, if I'm, if I'm wanting to sit down and write an article and I'm, uh, I'm exhausted from two or three nights and not enough sleep or too much training or whatever, I can't focus well. And that same thing carries over in, into our training and our, in our monitoring systems with with HRV, because we can start to recognize this stuff. Um, yeah, so I mean, that, that's, I think that that was, yeah, I wasn't known to be super mentally focused, but I think it was the area uh, along with my fitness that I improved the most over, over my skiing career. Let me ask you a question. I, I think you also lived a life different from many athletes in this day, or even from my generation, my understanding is you lived a, a simple, I don't know, a pious even life of an athlete where you don't have, you don't need to spend much money. You don't need to have much money. You live a very simple, almost like Spartan life as an athlete. I think you were quite good at that is my uh, recollection anyway, as compared to needing to make money, 
needing things, you know, it creates a cycle of need, which it creates a cycle of less focus and distraction and so on. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if it was a conscious choice as, you know, we didn't make a lot of money skiing then. Um, we didn't have a lot of money. We had some decent contracts and we just had to live, live simply. But I, I think to me, it was just all about, this is something I was really passionate about and really wanted to do to the best of my ability. And that's, that's what I was going to do. I mean, it, do what, whatever I believed it, it takes to be as successful as I can be. And um, it, what, I mean, that was the fundamental choice I made is do you, do you want to be really good or do you want to do this kind of in a half-assed manner? If you look at the um, stereotypical, you know, athlete in the cabin in the woods, kind of Rocky Four kind of a thing, you know, um, you're, you're eliminating, um, a lot of the um, modern training assists or methods, you know, like a gym and, and uh, there's, there's that aspect that is minus, but there's a positive to something like that too, I would have to say to me anyway, where I don't just, I'm, I guess I'm romantic about this, but I, I believe <laughs> there's something great about the, the idea of an athlete just focusing on what they do and loving every minute of it. You have to have a passion in order to do that. And, and just simply living a simple life of, a, of an elite athlete, focused and, and uh, healthy, you know, sport. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I enjoyed the lifestyle. It's a great life. I mean, and, and, and we talk about it here in, in our, our family here quite a bit is, you know, if I were independently wealthy, there's nothing more I would enjoy doing than, than just being able to, live a training a full training lifestyle get up in the morning have breakfast go out the door do a workout come back relax do a little work do whatever and then you know maybe some days do a second workout or a strength workout is just that that aesthetic of that lifestyle is 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 very rewarding to me i mean it's just it, it's 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 mentally stimulating in, in a in a, in a really different way. It's not that I, I go out there and, and try to solve my life problems or world problems when I'm, but it's, it's mentally to go for, you know, a couple hour bike ride and just go out and go easy and, and be in tune with your body um, is mentally refreshing. At the end of the day, I think that's the thing that we have in common is a love for for being active in a healthy manner, living this uncomplicated, you know, the simple athlete life. I, I, I think anyway, it's something that that a lot of us have in common. And, yeah, and I think all of all of the the guys that and, and the women that skied in in, in my era, you know, they're all. I, I I would say we still all think of ourselves as athletes. Yeah, we're not super fast anymore. Or, maybe not even super fit anymore, but we're in our, in our heads, we're athletes still. I completely agree. I, I have the same thought of, about myself, even though I, I have no illusion as to, you know, where <laughs> I'm at. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm happy to be able to go out and, 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 you know, plot along at a, at a 10 minute mile at level one at this altitude. And, you know, 30 years ago, just no illusions. I could have probably done, 630 miles for that same intensity. It's just 
that's that's okay. <laughs> yeah. So you've seen a transformation in the United States that has been profound. When you started skiing, there was very little, well, there weren't that many skiers, but there was very little expertise in our country. There may have been a whole lot of skiers during the 80s, but we didn't have ranks of educated coaches like we do now, nor did we have a Nordic ski culture anywhere except for a small pocket in Vermont. When you started ski racing, I bet there were maybe seven Nordic ski coaches in the entire country and maybe maybe 10 and maybe a, a couple of them were employed full time year round. And now we have an army of every every local club within the Intermountain or Rocky Mountain. They have full time coaches. Um, I'd love to hear your, your perspective on on how this progress and, and this change. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think. Um... Number one is it wasn't for a lack of, of, of good coaching or, or good coaching wasn't deficient, I would say, in, 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 in my ear. I think the coaches were trying really hard. Um, there just wasn't a lot of good information. We had, to, we had to reinvent, we had to really invent the wheel um, during those years. Um, so that that's kind of covers the coaching aspect. Um, certainly, um, yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to argue that having having more qualified, well-trained coaches is important. But I will I will say I think we need uh, within the reform movement of the U.S. Olympic Committee and the NGBs, we need we need to have an educational system for coaches. Um, I, I believe anyhow, um, that gives them the basic training um, and, and principles of the sport. And I don't, I don't think the ones, this, the coaches education systems run by the NGBs or, or the divisions is, is at all adequate. So, I mean, there's certainly a lot of good coaches out there doing good stuff, but I think we need to make sure that they're, that they're educated at a, at, at a sufficient level. Um, to work with kids. The, the only downside I see in all this is, is and, and, and I'm guilty of it starting, but even, even today, the prices of the APU programs haven't really changed that much in, in the last 15 years that I've been gone. They're, they're still relatively affordable, but I, I think that this, this, we're, we, we've grown into, in many areas of the country, these these pay to play systems where you have to join a club that costs the family four, five, eight, ten thousand $10,000 a year to get that coaching. And I think that's, that's a very big challenge. We need to figure out a way to address um, or, or else it's just going to be a rich man's sport, you know, and it's, I'm, I'm not going to, there's a lot of programs that are in that realm financially. And it's, it's yeah. Some of them have scholarships. Some of them have other mechanisms to help support athletes. But it 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 is. I'll just leave it at this. It's a really big challenge in my mind, with the number of high cost programs. And yeah, that's what that's what having parents want professional coaching for their kids, and and that's what it ends up costing. But we've got to have a different support mechanism in there or else it's, 
it's it's going to be selecting out athletes based on their economic status, not on their ability. I don't have the perfect solution to that equation, but I think as a as a sport and as a sports community in the U.S., we need to be taking a hard look at that. Jim, um, your famous World Cup relay team of Tim Caldwell, Bill Coke, Dan Seminole, and yourself were, of course, absolute stars and trailblazers. You were the only one who stayed in the sport consistently after retiring. You've had coached ever since then at the highest levels and having worked as a technician, managing touring center, designing trails. It's important to realize back then that there were very few possibilities to, to earn a living in the Nordic ski industry. I know you have a tremendous passion for Nordic skiing. I've seen that myself, of course. Is this what kept you in the sport the whole time or, or what, what, what is it that um, kept you? Uh, it's like I said, it's, I, I like going out the door and being an athlete. I like going out the door and being a coach. Um, yeah, unfortunately in COVID, we can't do a lot of these things these days, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not been a, a tremendously lucrative lifestyle by any, by any stretch, but it's been, it's been highly enjoyable and um, yeah, it's just something that I love to do. It's just, it's 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 who I am. If 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 that's a that's how I describe it. Way to define it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, you know, yeah, I ch I chose that pathway because I that's what I really wanted to do. You know, the the other guys, Dan and Tim and Bill, they they chose slightly different pathways. It doesn't you know their choices aren't right or wrong? As mine is not right or wrong. It's just that's that's what they they chose to do, and they. You know, they had families and they had professional careers and, you know, whatever else came along with that. And that's, um, yeah, just not, not the path I chose. Super. Uh, I know you're an analytical person who's always thinking, and you're, of course, a lifelong learner. I know these things. I don't want to end this interview without giving you the opportunity to give your thoughts without me, you know, saying, what do you think about this specifically? Um, I think it would be absolutely nuts for someone to think you were outdated because you competed way back when. I know you've stayed in the forefront of the sport in, in every aspect um, in terms of your contact, your ideas, and your knowledge. So I want to ask you, what do we as the U.S. Nordic ski racing community need to hear or realize? What perspective will we look, do we need? Oh gosh, you know we touched on just about all of them, Ian, and I think I think they're 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 all important. I think, um, you know, patience and intelligence in the training process are are are, are really critical. I I I use the word overtraining a lot, and it makes people really uncomfortable. Um, my definition doesn't fit the scientific definition. Uh, exactly. But my definition of overtraining is if an athlete's not consistently improving, they're overtraining. It's just, it's, it's, to me, it's just that simple and that obvious. And I, I think we need to be aware of, of, of this problem. And it's, you know, I, I, I think much, much in the last 10 years, many of the, much, most of the athletes I've worked with have been kind of to some degree or another rehabilitation cases, people that have been moderately to severely overtrained for a year or two or three. Um, 
it's a tough job to get people back and to rebuild their confidence. And uh, I, so I think that's, that, that's, yeah. So people think, geez, Jim, you're, you're a hardcore training when you're an athlete. Now you're turning into a wimp. No, I'm, I don't, I don't believe I am. I think, yeah, you got to train hard. You got to train a lot, but you got to train smart. And I'm, I'm, I'm not a wimp at all. I ask a lot of the athletes, but I, 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 I think we've, we've got to get a whole lot smarter about these training processes because I, I, think, I think we lose more good athletes than we have success with the, with the, with the few remaining. Um, and that's something I, I just really, really feel strongly about is we're, we're losing athletes before they get to really shine or enjoy their true potential. Um, so that that's probably that's probably my biggest my biggest agenda my biggest message and I, I talk to coaches on the phone pretty regularly and and that, that that's kind of stuff we talk about all the time super and let me let me ask a couple of personal questions first what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out <laughs> I don't, I, I, I grapple, you, you shared with me that question. I have, I have no idea. And I thought I could be humorous about it, but that's, that, that's not in my nature either. And I, I think, uh, um, so, Jim, you know, your, your reputation is very stoic, quite serious, business-like, maybe yeah. intense. There's gotta be, I'm sure there are things about you that, uh, that, betray that or in conflict with that stereotype of you. I, 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 don't, I don't disagree with that stereotype, but I think what, 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 you know, with my friends, they understand it is a lot of those, a lot of that perception comes from, um, you know, I'm fundamentally a shy guy. I just, I'm not that guy that's out there glad handing and, and um, slapping people on the back. I, I, you know, a lot of times I'm I'm very comfortable being in the background. I don't, I, you know. Um, I I had no idea that you were shy. I've known you for a long time. That's I mean that, yeah. When I was younger, painfully so. Now maybe not painfully so, but <laughs> a little bit that way. And you know, doing things like this certainly certainly opens opens me and others up to 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 some great communication, which helps, but. I was know, on the uh, Project 92 team. You were a national team coach at the time when that was named, so I'm, I know you're familiar with it. Um, so it was, a, it was a US key team with the idea of competing in 1992 Olympics. The team was named in 19, I think it was 86. Um, and at, when I was at events, and you were a national team coach, so I know he knew who I was. And I would go to events, like nationals, for example, and I'd see you and you'd look at me and I felt like you were looking at me not very friendly in manner <laughs> quite often. And, and probably because I was being a dumbass, you know, that, that's the way I interpreted it at the time and looking back. But now as you say that, I never once thought maybe you were a little shy and you were like, well, if he says hello, I'm going to say hello. But I was probably being a dumbass and you're looking at me like, what a dumbass. No, I, I doubt that. I mean, I, 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 I'm not quite that quick to judge people, but I, I, I just think it's, it's people that are... Yeah, I mean, there's people that are outgoing, and there's there's people that are shy and introverts, and that's 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 where I fall. And and 
yeah, you can you can struggle and push yourself and try to change things, but you know, ultimately it's yeah, like like still thinking of myself as an athlete. That's that's who I am. I'm 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 introverted. I'm not gonna go out of my way, you know, to 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 glad hand and you know be gregarious with people. That's just not who I am. And that's for me, that's okay. And as long, you know. I think I think if, as long as we recognize different, you know, with 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 the athletes I coach and and have good rapport with, it's you know we have great conversations. Yeah, but it's it's not like I'm going to be out there jumping up and down on the side of the bike trail or the ski trail, going crazy over their performances. I'm going to be reserved about it. That's just that's yeah. just the way it is. Well, that's cool. I, I didn't realize you were shy in. Uh... And that's, uh, that's nice, to, it's interesting to find out. Let me ask you one last question. Do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Oh boy. I think we, I think we probably summed them up, Ian, and what is it? It's 11, two and a half hours of, yeah. <laughs> of well, words set here. Set the record for the longest interview. Uh, uh, but, but what about non-ski non related, just a life life approach? You know, what are, have you, have you got any kind of, like philosophy that seemed to have served you well that you believe in um, for you? Yeah. You know, I, 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 I and, and hopefully most aspects of my life, I think I, I'm, I think it's important that we're always learning and always moving forward. And just because I'm 60 something years old now, it doesn't mean I can't keep learning and can't keep improving. And that's, that whether it's in sports or life, I think that's what we're, hopefully all of us are all about. We're just trying to, trying to get through this challenge called life and be, be a little bit better every day if we can. What you just said is really important to me. That's a core value of mine. And I, I'm getting older myself, you know, um, and I've had the thought of more than a few times when I approach life and I no longer am actively learning, like I'm a lifelong learner like you, I feel like I've got nothing to live for. Like the, to me, that's that defines living for me is learning and and pursuing knowledge and and you know yeah it's really that's a critical aspect to what living means to me. Yeah, and it, it to me, I think it's a it's a great way to kind of wrap up the the talk today. But I think that's 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 what I do in my coaching, and that's what I hopefully do in my life, and and. Uh, is just keep learning. I mean, I, I'll read, I don't know, three, four, five sports science articles a day someday. Some, I mean, I may go a week without doing it, but then I'll, you know, get onto a topic in, in my uh, email. You know, I get sports science articles in my email box and I get onto a thread and we'll get really interested and we'll try to learn everything I can about it. And I think that's, 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 yeah, whether you're a 30-year-old coach or a 64-year-old coach, I think we got to keep learning and we got to keep exploring um, what we're doing and why we're doing it on a daily basis. Well, I, that's great. I, that resonates with me a lot. Jim, um, we've seen a lot of each other over the years, and um, I hope that I've uh, treated you with respect and admiration because that's what I feel for you. And I appreciate you coming on today and 
sharing your life and your experiences with me as well as our, uh, we have quite a lot of listeners, so I call it the American Skiing Public. Um, so thank you very much for doing this. And I, I appreciate it, Ian. And I think I think these forums where, where it would be ideal if we had kind of 30 or 40 or 50 people, uh, maybe that's too many, but sharing in these kind of discussions and talking about some of these threshold issues we talked about. I mean, I think that's really what's gonna help the sport and sports in general in this country move forward when we can have, you know, we don't we don't have to agree, we don't have to be negative to each other, but you know, I think the more we share information and experiences um, is probably the single um, biggest thing I'd like to see um, moving in to move the sport forward is just more more positive exchanges like this and yeah hopefully with a few more people in the future well that's this definitely part of my vision for these for these interviews in this series i think this is my 39th interview oh, and i got here. got many more coming and it's been <laughs> very popular we've got something like 1500 unique listeners and um i guess now we're at about 17,000 downloads so you know this has been a quite a popular thing it seems like people are looking for it and I'm uh, full on. I'm enjoying it. I've learned a lot, Good. and um, I'm planning on continuing with it for sure. Well, thanks for thanks for doing it. I mean, like I said, I, I I've not I've certainly not seen all 39 of them. I've seen a few of them, but uh, I, I I really really appreciate your your, your focus of these and and uh, your attitude and your respect shown to the to the to the people you had on the on the podcast. And you know, I I was I really liked. Um, you, you did a great job bringing Bill Koch's true nature to the surface. And I, th I thought that was well done. I appreciate that a lot. Well, thanks. It's been an honor for me to do this with you as well. Uh, like I said, I've admired you and respected you for a long time. Well, thank you, Ian. Appreciate it, man. And continue to, of course. Okay, well, thank you.